latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast, where we interview academics and entrepreneurs at the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gumbari, and I am the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. If you like this episode and would like to support our work, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review and visit our website, the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. Welcome to the latest installment of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast. Um, my guest today is Dr. Frisch. He's going to be talking to us about his very interesting case study titled Atrial Fibrillation or Unstable Angina, Utilization of Mobile Electrocardiographic Device to Diagnose Acute Coronary Syndrome. Welcome, Dr. Frisch. Thank you for having me. Um, I've been excited to talk to you about this uh, case report that uh, you published in our journal. Um, but before we dive deep, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, uh, where you are, what kind of problems you are focused on in your clinical and research work? Sure. I'm at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, and I'm a clinical electrophysiologist. I've been here since 2007, and my primary focus has been on atrial fibrillation management since I've been here. Um, the, there was a small program when I started, we've increased our ablation volume and we do all sorts of AFib management, including ablation. We do research in the area and uh, we're also interested here, at least I am personally, in, in using digital health and wearable options for the management of these patients. Now it's wonderful. Um, I, I want to kind of... Um, maybe dive deep into the paper that you published in our journal a little bit. Um, so kind of maybe you can tell our audience um, how you started thinking about this particular problem and kind of lay out the case for our audience um, as it unfolded and how you use your visual devices to tackle this particular problem. Yeah, of course. So I've been very excited by the evolution of wearable devices, particularly as many electrophysiologists know, a lot of the decisions that we make involve seeing a rhythm abnormality or any type of heart conduction system disorder. And as uh, different wearable devices have become available, as the recordings have gotten better, it's been a real helpful tool to have a longitudinal relationship with a patient that also includes the ability to record their heart rhythm either at the time of symptoms or at different interval time points if a therapy has been done and so forth. And we actually uh, keep track of a lot of our patients who have wearable devices, much like we keep track of our implanted cardiac electronic device patients. And we have a, a database at times up to up to 700 patients at a time. There are people who drop in and out of the subscription service, but this really has become part of our standard of care for how we manage our, our patients with palpitations and known arrhythmias. So in that context, I have patients who've been through ablation, been through therapy for AFib, and yet despite initial success, sometimes they come back and say, doc, I have symptoms again, or it feels like this is back, or I feel like I have something new to share, um, to which it's very convenient to say, well, we have a tool to monitor you. If it's not an implanted device, it's a wearable. And in that context, we, we ask patients, listen, make a recording when you feel something. It can be a, a watch, it can be a, a, a portable. Um, I think the audience is familiar with some of the brands that make these devices. And in the particular case that led to this case report, I had a patient who had previously 
had an ablation at another institution, but came to see me. My initial uh, interaction with the patient was about ongoing anticoagulation and whether or not it was even necessary following a successful ablation. Um, and this particular patient had a history of a hemorrhagic, an intracranial hemorrhagic complication, so the stakes felt a bit higher. And for a while, I managed her with frequent monitoring at regular intervals, and we made decisions simply about how to anticoagulate or not. I recognize this is a different topic, but what should we do in that in that context, particularly with the ability to, to measure at frequent intervals? Every 24 hours, every 12 hours, it could all be done. And this particular patient was doing very well for a while when she came back with the, the statement that I hear a lot, hey, doc, my symptoms are back. And I said, well, we ought to see what's going on. Tell me about the context, record when you feel it, and so forth. Except this particular time, we had a very surprising finding, which was not the, her heart rhythm. So this time she had her, what she described as more or less typical symptoms, but she was clearly in sinus rhythm. And what no particular wearable device is able to do now is she had very profound ST segment changes on a single lead, but enough to convince me and then to convince my colleagues when I asked for curbside help that something else was going on. And in fact, it looked uh, so much so like a failed stress test that we took the action to proceed directly to an invasive evaluation rather than to simply go through lesser invasive and more conservative testing options. This is uh, so interesting because it um, kind of shows us the utility of these devices beyond what we typically think about. Um, so, you know, that's one of the major concerns with, um, you know, getting one lead is that, you know, you're looking essentially at a lead one device and um, the lead one, you know, it's notorious for, you know, not being the ideal lead to look at ST segment changes or even P waves to a certain, to a large degree. Um, what do you think is the utility of a single lead, lead one device for kind of tackling the problem that you, that you are kind of talking about here? Uh, and then maybe you can tell us about, you know, how can we leverage additional leads particularly in this, using our wearable devices to look at this particular problem being that's a segment change. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I agree that that's a, a limitation of, of all current wearables right now is, is even getting six leads, which is six times as good as a single lead. It's still not quite the, the medical standard of a 12 lead ECG. And I can think about this problem in two ways. The, the first is if we had the best that there is to offer, which is continuous 12 lead recordings of all patients at all times, right? Which we consider our, our gold standard recording system. There, there's still a ceiling of a sensitivity of somewhere in the seventies for sensitivity and specificity about picking up ischemia. And, and this goes back, it's not new to look for chest pain and ischemia using recording devices. That goes back probably to the 70s or 1980s when the devices looked different and they were bulky and so forth. And even a, even a stress test, which is a standard, uh, a standard test for anyone who has this set of symptoms, that's about as good as we get. So on, on one level, I think we know the best possible uh, outcome we could expect, which is a sensitivity and specificity somewhere in the seventies or eighties. 
And it's got to be less than that if we're looking at one lead as opposed to 12. So your, your point is well taken that let's impose the limitations of a single lead. But on top of that, I think we have to impose the limitations of what our best electrocardiographic monitoring can do even in the best of circumstances. So that I, I would say that's issue number one. And I don't know how surmountable that one is, meaning say we had 256 leads or some even more sophisticated vest that could be worn where every angle of the electrocardiographic heart could be evaluated. How much better would we do in stressful situations? I, I don't know the answer to that one. That's theoretical. Then to answer the, the first part of your question, what I would say is what is really nice about most wearable devices is they can be leveraged to record more than just their intended single lead. Uh, I mean, our my group and I, we've, we've had some other case reports and small publications where we've looked at this issue and we found that we can, um, by doing it ourselves on patients, we've been able to recreate 12 lead ECGs. We, after a while, we got a little fatigued with that and we did nine leads. We skipped V4 through V6 in one particular publication. And we found that we get a little more info. Um, and the way I know we get a little more info is we collected all these things. We asked our colleagues, uh, hey, which version of this wearable uh, do you like better in terms of making a diagnosis of left bundle, right bundle, conduction system disease and so forth? And everybody likes more leads. So that's that's not a huge surprise. That was us doing it. In other studies, we've actually asked patients to do it for themselves. And we've looked at it in one or two ways. One is we say, here's a set of alligator cables. Here's some ECG stickers. Here's a little uh, instruction sheet about what to do. And we found in, in a particular study that we could get people to record lead two quite reliably and even lead V1 um, by manipulating a single lead device and putting, uh, as I said, alligator clips and stickers. Um, an even simpler thing, which is something I do in regular everyday clinical practice now, is it's very easy to get lead two from uh, pretty much every wearable device. So a watch, for example, instead of being worn on the left wrist, can be placed across the left leg with the right hand touching the recording device. And there's lead two instantly, no extra equipment, no particular difficulty. With some of the, uh, the, the stick devices, like the single lead CardioMobile, for example, you can place an electrode, one on the left leg, one in the right hand, and there you have uh, lead one and lead two available to you without any any particular difficulty. So there is room for leverage. I think that's my point on that one. That's fantastic. Um, so what happens next? I mean, you certainly discovered a very unique and important utility of wearable devices. Uh, but as you mentioned, there's many different ways to obtain the ECGs and there's many different clinical scenarios that this needs to be tested and evaluated. Can you tell us about your plan to how to proceed from this and evaluate it in large clinical studies? Yeah, that, that's a, a great question. Um, let me answer it slightly differently and then, then I can tell you about our, our own plans. I, I, I think that the way that there is lots of room for innovation in this space and it excites me that there are companies and, and doctors who, who work closely with these companies to, to perform these innovations and, and create these devices and to expand their, their capability and reporting quality. And I, I expect there will be a 12 lead version uh, that's patient friendly, doctor friendly and so forth. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that it's, it's on its way. I mean, the, the six lead versions of these devices, I think are a, a real step forward than single lead 
And there, I think there are ways to, to use simpler grounding uh, locations, right arm, left arm, rather than having to put multiple beads on, on the lower limbs that might solve some of these issues. Again, these are not things that I'm working on directly, but things that I'm aware of um, out there. The, um, it, it's, it's interesting. The, the direction that our work has, has taken in the last, well, I would say during the COVID era, is we've been focusing a little bit more on how to use these devices um, with less person-to-person contact. And by that, I mean, uh, when we had patients hospitalized initially with COVID, we found ways to use these devices where the patient could be in an exam room and we could be outside of the room uh, with a tablet or a phone and get information about QT intervals, rhythm, um, and try to leverage more than than just simply are they in sinus rhythm or not. We're even right now expanding that to um, look at patients who are chronically on methadone um, because there is a recommendation, and I was not aware of this, within the psychiatric and uh, pain management community where regular ECGs are, are a requirement because these are, these are patients who are on medicines that can pathologically prolong the QT and lead to other problems. However, this patient population has a, a difficult time in a lot of cases showing up at a medical office to get a proper 12 lead. And likewise, uh, the, the practitioners at the methadone clinics don't really want the responsibility of administering a 12 lead and interpreting it. So we're right now we're we're working on a project where we're trying to be available for six lead remote monitoring of patients at a methadone clinic where we can adjudicate QT intervals, heart rhythm, and then decide if escalation of care becomes necessary. As an example, that sounds uh, super interesting, and we should definitely have you back to talk about the results of that study. Um, you know, it's a problem that I actually can encounter clinically a lot as well. So it's fantastic that you're tackling that problem. Um, okay, so um, the last part of this conversation is um, what I call uh, Dr. Prish productivity function. Um, so I think a lot of our um, audience want to know about um, more senior um, clinicians and scientists about how they actually organize their day and how they go about you know, their productivity. Um, is there a system they have in place? So maybe you could tell our audience a little bit about how you stay productive, how do you organize your day, particularly how you manage clinical duties um, and your you know, research writing. It's a great question and, and it's a, a fair question for anyone trying to make their way uh, in a career like we have chosen. Um, I'm fortunate in that the days that I see office patients, I only see office patients. And in the day that I do procedures in the EP lab, I only do procedures in the EP lab. So I've found that I don't have to spend uh, much time trying to commute between responsibilities. I think that's an opportunity for, for lost time and inefficiency. So at least I know that once I've landed where I'm going to be for the day, I can get through the clinical work as it needs to get done. What I can then do with the, the general predictability of knowing how the day is going to go is I can schedule meetings such as this at certain times. I can schedule meetings with my fellows and residents who are always eager and prop me up to make me look like a, a better academician than I ever thought I could be because uh, of, of their effort, enthusiasm, and knowledge, frankly. So, um, 
I can, knowing how the, the day is going to go, not every day is an adventure of what comes next, um, but there's the ability to, to schedule uh, within. I, I would really like to add to any listener uh, on this podcast that, uh, that wellness is important too. It's, it's very easy in, in any career to overwhelm yourself and, and to burn out. And as much as uh, life becomes scheduled, scheduling in wellness becomes a necessary it, it, it's it's not enough to say well i'll i'll relax when i get to it. it it's important i think to include that in in the in the day's plan um an example if if i may share a personal example is uh, in the nicer weather sometimes i'll ride my bike to the hospital um, instead of saying well i'll just get around to the gym uh, at the end of the day, because that end of the day never, never happens. Um, and certainly I'd like to spend time with my family at, at the end of those days. And the occasional scheduled uh, uh, trip down to see a hockey game is a, is, is a lot of fun for me too. And again, with, with planning anything in advance, uh, just about anything. Can... That sounds amazing. Um, just to cap off this conversation, there's a question that's been on my mind that I want to ask you. I know you're a Washington Capitals fan. So what do you think? Who's the best uh, Russian player to ever play hockey? Sergei Fedorov? Mm-hmm. I'm from Detroit. Or, or Ovechkin? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm going to have to put my uh, hat in the Ovechkin uh, ring here. I mean, it really, he's a generational player. And I think you'd agree that the that the notoriety he gets from, he has more goals by several hundred than the next closest active player to him, which is really unheard of in this day and age. And, and he is a great source of entertainment and pride for me as, as a Capitals fan. Fine. I, I may argue that, you know, scoring goals is not all there is to hockey. Adderoff was maybe a more complete player, but that is for another day for us to talk about. Uh, Ovi ho- hoisted the cup, so he has some, <laughs> but yeah, I, it's a fun sport to watch regardless of who you're a fan for. Wonderful. Well, it was uh, wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking uh, the time to speak with me. And I certainly look forward to hearing more about your work in the near future. Well, I really appreciate this opportunity. And um, I'm also interested in following your career along. You're quite accomplished in your own right as well. Thank you.